From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The fight for equal pay persists for women across the country. But how are women faring in this state? An update from the Women's Foundation of Colorado on Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Is the new law making a difference here? Then, the pandemic slammed the heart of Denver, but developers remain bullish. They're betting that downtown is far from dead. They see a lot of room for growth. And sure, it hit the hard time, but for them, that's just a blip. Downtown Denver's population could double in the next few decades. We'll get a glimpse of the many projects in store. Plus, birds are on the move. What these feathered visitors are up to. And later, trash contamination. Coloradans struggle with what to throw away, recycle, or compost. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A Black woman has to work until today, September 21st, in addition to all of last year, to make what a white man earned in 2021. Yes, 264 more days of work to earn the same salary for the same job. This according to a growing body of research. That's why today is known as Black Women's Equal Pay Day. The date changes annually, but it's always an important one for Lauren Young Castile. She is an expert on pay inequality for women who serves as CEO of the Women's Foundation of Colorado. She has also been inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. Lauren, welcome. Thank you, Chandra. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I did my best to sum up what Black Women's Equal Pay Day is, but in your own words, what does this day mean to you? Well, I think it means a number of things. First, I'd like to go back historically to the fact that when Black women came to this country as slaves, we were property, and we were property for the purpose of profit for others. So when we talk about equal pay and all of those Um, years, hundreds of years since slavery. It is, in fact, for me personally, um, a painful awareness that you have just articulated through that data. And it's also a larger economic problem, not only for our families and for our children, but for our communities as a whole. So the research shows that black women make 58 cents to every $1 white men make? That's correct. Uh, About 63% uh, would be the national and the Colorado number. And that 19 months that you talked about of what it takes, if one also looks not only at black women, but, you know, Asian Pacific Islander or Native women and uh, Latina women, the gaps are equally as discouraging. 
What can you tell us about how this issue impacts Black women who work in America over the course of their careers? Uh, The implications are significant in terms of the wealth gaps. So I can speak um, specifically, for example, about the wealth gap that comes in terms of retirement. Uh, By not having the equal pay, that means that the amount of money that is going into any available retirement fund is also limited. It can affect the ability to buy a home, which is one of the greatest drivers of wealth for any family and any community. And when one considers the inaccessibility that black men had as a result of the GI Bill's limitations to buy homes or to receive higher education, then there's a double edge that has affected black families and communities uh, for generations. So those are some of the implications of equal pay. And certainly in a difficult economy, uh, those basic needs that we have, Mm. women are struggling generally, uh, and women and families with access to food and to housing, not even buying a home, but the high price of rent, for example, in the Denver community, is dramatic. So equal pay can, in fact, make the difference in Uh, the quality of life for today in a way that is deeply meaningful uh, for all of our communities. Now, I found this interesting. Black Women's Equal Pay Day was previously in August, but due to the widening gap, the date was pushed back this year to September. Pretty sobering. And then uh, some research suggests that black women lose an estimated $946,000 in earnings over the course of a 40-year career. And apparently this this persists regardless of education, location, age, uh, depending, you know, low-paying low jobs, high-paying jobs. And there's also a th- uh, something called the motherhood penalty where women uh, struggle as they have children. Absolutely. There are all kinds of inherent biases that are built into our systems. So the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act that the Women's Foundation of Colorado worked in partnership with the Colorado Women's Bar Association and 9 to 5 to help the passage of this bill that was led by uh, Senator Janet Buckner, along with other uh, state legislators, what that does is one: it prohibits employers from, uh, from employees from being penalized for talking about their pay to other employees. Mm. So transparency is a key component. Um, inquiring about pay history is no longer permitted because that perpetuates the pay so gaps asking, themselves. What salary did you make? What previously? salary did you make before? So if you were already low, then even if they gave you a raise, the proportion continues to be disproportionately low. And salary ranges and benefits need to be included in job postings. 
that has benefits for both the employee or potential employee and potential employer. As a result of that transparency, the uh, job seeker has an opportunity to figure out what is the best fit and what their incomes might be projected for the future. And the employers have the opportunity to really be competitive because they can see what others are, in fact, um, paying or the benefits that they're providing. That transparency is critical uh, for everyone. And according to a recent study by the National uh, Women's Law Center, equal pay is slowly, there's some indicators, uh, beginning to close some of those wealth gaps, mm -hmm. that 900,000 that you were just talking about over a 400-year period. Yes. So this issue is very personal to me as a black woman, but also because I spent much of 2020 hosting and producing right here in Denver, a podcast about this very issue of black women and equal pay. It's called In the Gap. And let's just say it was quite sobering hearing some of the heartbreaking experiences shared by the black women I interviewed. Here's a bit of what Aja, a CU grad and engineer here in Colorado, told me about the moment she first learned that a white male co-worker was making substantially more than her. We were out at lunch, and it was just me and him, and we were just talking about work and joking around. And, um, you know, I think it just leisurely came out like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just making this amount. And, you know, and I was like, oh, that's neat. Like, you know, we did the same job, the same exact job, to be specific. And, you know, we sat right next to each other. We both took calls and solved trouble tickets. And so it's like, huh. What did he say? He said he made a certain amount of money mm -hmm. and— it was how was how did that compare to what you were making? I was forty to forty five thousand less than that number. So I was very um immediately shocked that, you know, I was offered so much lower and I was there longer. I had more tenure. So I was immediately confused. But of course we were at lunch and so I, I tried to just kind of put a smile on my face behind all this pain because I'm like, how in the world am I getting paid? a significant amount less than him. And uh, I always get a little emotional hearing um, Aja tell that story because um, I'm glad that she honed in on the emotion of it. Like, you know, you can get into the statistics and the data, but there's just an emotional component that doesn't get addressed. How has this played out in your life? Well, I've had a similar experience where I inadvertently learned uh, that there was a gap between myself and a colleague who, again, had the same job, and I had uh, more seniority, more experience. I was naive in that because there was lack of transparency, um, that I trusted the system. Um, and, and that's embarrassing for me to admit now, but I think it's very common for women. But I trusted because of my relationship with my boss, my great reviews, my experience, accolades I'd received, um, that my pay was comparable. Mm -hmm. When I saw a piece of paper that revealed that that was not correct uh, and went to my um, supervisor, the reason that I was given was that the male had taken, would have had to take a pay cut, a pay cut when he was transferred into that position from another industry. Mm. And so that was allowed for. 
But the gap, the inequity of my perhaps getting that ad- advancement had not been considered. Mm -hmm. I'm pleased to say that it was rectified. But in Mm. the meantime, I had lost um, contributions to retirement. You know, it impacts many Mm. different things uh, within our lives. And now that I am 68 years of age, I'm very cognizant of that. I was hurt. I was disappointed. I was embarrassed. I uh, was aware of the fact that I had not questioned before because I didn't want to be um, an aggressive black woman. Um, And in retrospect, that's why I'm so thrilled about the work of the Women's Foundation on this bill. We are opening up the opportunities for open, honest, transparent conversations based on equal pay for equal work. But the hurt was palpable for me. And you mentioned um, there's lawmakers have tried to tackle this issue with Colorado's Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, which went into effect in 2021, and your organization has described it as a huge step in closing the wage gap for women in Colorado. Is it working? It is working. Uh, And of course, there are challenges. Change is always hard. Colorado is a leader in this regard. Uh, And now New York State, California, Washington are following along. Um, The expectation is that uh, there will be one in six uh, people who will be impacted. And I think we'll also begin to see that everyone benefits. Equal pay for equal work is a pretty simple concept. Being open and honest about pay ranges and benefits is a pretty simple concept. What's hard to change is the mindset of the systems that have perpetuated those inherent biases and uh, the devaluing and lack of investment in women broadly who make 83 83 cents on the dollar, and then certainly women of color and black women specifically. Again, going back to multiple generations of disregard for the black woman's body. Well, 2020 was a big year for social justice, and there was a lot of discussion about the importance of allies. What can all of us do, regardless of being woman, women of color? What can we all do to show our support for this issue? I am thrilled to say I'm a part of... um, Uh, a number of groups where there are business leaders, Colorado's inclusive economy, and there are men who are championing the values of supporting women and diverse employees in order to improve the value not only of the individual, but their profits. Lauren Young-Castile, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lauren is the CEO of the Women's Foundation of Colorado and is also a 2014 Colorado Women's Hall of Fame inductee. She joined us to talk about Black Women's Equal Pay Day, which is today, September 21st, and is the approximate day research shows that a Black woman must work into 2022 to make the same salary that a non-Hispanic white man earned at the end of 2021. Up next, Colorado's night skies are crowded right now with birds. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell. 
make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Almost two million birds flew over your head last night, and you probably didn't even know it. But look around in the light of day, and you'll see who's dropped in for a seasonal visit. It's the heart of fall migration, and I'm joined right now by Sarah Doxson, Education Director for the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. Welcome, Sarah. Two million migrating birds over Colorado. That seems like a lot, but I understand altogether there are about 200 million birds migrating across the United States right now. I'm sure I learned this in elementary school, but I need a refresher. Why do birds migrate? That is a wonderful question. Um, So birds migrate um, mostly because of food. So many times people might think that birds get too cold if they're in the northern parts of the country. That's not really the case. They're actually quite Mm. good at at keeping warm. That's why we have down jackets. They have their own down jackets (laughs) all year long. I never thought about that. (laughs) So their main driver, though, is food. So a lot of these songbirds that we study at Bird Conservancy, they're insect eaters. So um, if they are spending their summers, their breeding season up in Canada and Alaska, Of course, the weather there gets quite chilly in the winter. If they're eating insects, those insects go away. So they need to find somewhere else where they can have a a plentiful food source. Why do they travel mostly at night? That is a great question as well. So if you're thinking about it, you know, picture yourself as a little songbird. Um, I like to use an example of a a Wilson's warbler. So they're very tiny yellow birds, um, and they are quite tasty to a number of predators, including, you know, things uh, like hawks and, um, and raptors that are generally more active during the day. So we think that it could be a safety thing. Um, We also don't fully have the answer. We don't totally know. We have a lot of theories. Um, But that could be one of the things is because of safety. Um, It could be how they migrate. So there are theories that they migrate using the stars um, and things like that. How do they know where they're going in the dark? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is another thing that so they have like night not, vision. I mean, they do. Yeah. So they, they do have good vision at night. Um, again, lots of theories about how they know where they're going. Um, so a lot of we think that they might use bigger landmarks, which is why things like cities and lights in the cities can actually be detrimental to bird migration. Um, Of course, we humans make nights brighter with street lights and car lights and everything else. Does that make it harder for the birds? It does, yes. So if if they're using the stars, the moonlight, whatever that might be, if they're flying over a big city like Denver and all of a sudden there is just this vast amount of lights. Um, you know, we have the light pollution. They may not be able to see the stars as well. And then they just get disoriented because there's all these other light sources um, mm. and they kind of get drawn in towards them. And what can happen is they they just get 
disoriented. They're flying around. And the thing is that they only have so much energy to use. They have to be really conscientious of how they use that energy. So what can happen when they get drawn down into cities is that they just get exhausted and they end up you know, landing on the sidewalk outside of the building here. Um, and they're not going to fare so well if that happens. So there's a lights out campaign to address mm-hmm. this? Yes. Yes, there is. Um, and this is a nationwide thing. Denver is starting to get um, on board with it. And it's helpful for anyone. So even if you are a homeowner, it's helpful for you to uh, turn your lights out. The main impact, though, and, and where uh, advocacy work is trying to be done is in the cities with our big buildings and skyscrapers. So what's a typical migrating bird I might see in daylight and what does it look like? Okay, so I mentioned the Wilson's Warbler. We have a a bird banding station at Bar Lake, and we can talk more about that in a minute. Um, But a Wilson's Warbler, they're they're very tiny. So if you've ever seen a black-capped chickadee, those are pretty common feeder birds. They're even smaller than that. They are bright yellow, and the males have a shiny black cap on top of their head, and the females, they do not have that. So that's how you can tell the difference between a male and a female. Um... You will know it's a warbler because, again, it's very tiny. It has this thin beak. They're insect eaters. They do not stop. So if you see this tiny yellow bird bouncing around in the trees and the bushes, uh, you're probably looking at a a warbler of some kind. Now, you mentioned the warblers are tiny little birds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there bigger birds I could see more easily on, like, a neighborhood walk? Sure, absolutely. Um, So things like a really beautiful bird that migrates through here is called a western tanager. Um, They are a bit bigger than warblers, and the males um, also have bright yellow. When I am teaching kids about them, I call them a sunset bird because their head is this this bright, fiery orange color, and it kind of ombre fades down into the bright yellow of their body. Um, So those are really fun birds that we can see this time of year, too. Well, let's listen what a tanager sounds like. Pretty cool. Beautiful. Absolutely. (laughs) I see your eyes lighting up over there. So some birds stick around Colorado for the whole winter. What's an example of that? Yes. So we have some birds that um, migrate to Colorado because this is a good habitat for them. They can find their food source. Uh, One of those could be a bald eagle. Now, bald eagles are... Their migration is kind of complicated, but a lot of them, especially if they are further north in Canada and Alaska, where the waters are freezing over much harder, they are primarily fish eaters. So they are looking for open water. And out at Bar Lake State Park, the water stays open all year long. So they can come hang out at Bar Lake and find fish all year or all winter long. What about bald eagles? What what do juvenile bald eagles look Mm. like? Yes. So, of course, we think of our typical majestic bald eagle having that bright white head, chocolate brown body, um, and bright white tail. They actually don't get that plumage until they're about five years old. So if you were to see a juvenile or a young bald eagle, uh, they start off as totally, totally brown, all chocolate brown body. And then as they get older, they get more and more white modeling and white feathers on their head and their tail until eventually it is solid uh, white on the head and tail. Well, I understand that eagles have made a comeback over the last few decades after almost going extinct. Um, You can see them a lot around Colorado, especially in the winter. How has the population been doing recently? 
Yeah, so recently we're seeing really good numbers too. Um, I've heard from a few people just anecdotally, they say, oh, you know, I haven't noticed as many eagles this year as in the past few. Um, And I was speaking with our bald eagle watch coordinator yesterday, and he was saying those are actually just uh, normal fluctuations. So there's nothing to be alarmed about. And quite the opposite, in fact, we're seeing really great uh, numbers of nesting eagles, which is a really Mm. good sign for the population. And one of the biggest birding spots in all of Colorado is at Bar Lake, east of Denver. And I understand that birds are counted there during the migration season. How do you count birds? Yes. So, um, you know, a lot of people say that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I think that fall banding at Bar Lake is the most wonderful time of the year. So what we do is something called bird banding. And essentially what we're doing is we are capturing these small songbirds using what we call a mist net. So it's a very fine, flexible net. It doesn't cause harm to the bird at all. So we catch the bird and we take a few different measurements. We are writing all of this data down. And the most important thing is we're putting a little metal band on their leg that has a nine-digit serial number. Hmm. Well, back to the bald eagles. I I just was curious, what kind of landscaping do they tend to gravitate to? Bald eagles, so they love, again, they need open water. So in really wide open spaces, they can be pretty territorial. They need um, really big, tall trees. So Bar Lake is surrounded by cottonwoods, which are really, really big. Um, and that is where they like to build their nests. Now, you talked about the small birds. Uh, I was just kind of curious, uh, how does it feel to hold one of those small birds? Is it kind of like a little nerve wracking? Like, you know, like sort of like how people are scared to hold newborns? Yes. Sometimes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. I remember the first time I held a bird. I mean, not only are you just completely awestruck that you're holding this magnificent little creature in your hand um, that is a wild animal that has its own life history. Um, But yeah, they're really small. And, you know, when you're holding them, you can feel their little heartbeat. You can feel them breathing. um, And it's it's just really incredible. Hmm. On a more serious note, what impact is climate change having on migration? Great question. So um, at Bar Lake, for our banding data, we don't have enough historical data to really know. Um, And as with most scientific questions, the answer could be it depends. Mm. What we are seeing, and I was talking to our banding manager yesterday, and what he was telling me was overall what we're seeing happening is that there is this timing mismatch. So For birds, they are triggered to know how to migrate by an instinct, Um, and it could be, it's probably by something like length of daylight. So that is something that does not change. But what does change as the climate changes is the timing of when plants are blooming, uh, when insects are emerging, and things like that. Now, those are food sources for these migrating birds. Um, So these birds are migrating relatively the same time each year, but when they get to their destination, their food source may not yet be ready or it may have already bloomed or, you know, the insects may not be there. So that's kind of what we're thinking right now. Well, I'm very far from being a birder, but if someone wanted to get started quickly, how could they get started just watching birds? Yes. Well, First of all, I invite you to come out to Bar Lake. Uh, It's a very (laughs) accessible park. It's very close to Denver. The trails are nice and wide and flat, and you can get uh, close to the lake. So I would encourage people to just start noticing what's around you. Even if you can't 
get out to Bar Lake, even what's in your own backyard. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. Sarah Doxson is Education Manager at the Berg Conservancy of the Rockies. People in Colorado are pretty bad at knowing what to throw away, what to recycle, what to compost, and then actually doing it. Trash contamination means entire truckloads of compost are going to landfills instead of being put to good use. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash says local governments and businesses are now trying to clean up their act. The type of contamination inspection we're doing right now is hands-on, and we're going to pull and push the piles apart and start looking to see what we have. This is Clinton Sander. He's the marketing manager at A1 Organics, and he's met me here at the company's facility in Keensburg so I can watch him sift through loads of supposedly organic waste. This, that is a tennis shoe. There is a dog toy. Here's an entire glass Tupperware container with food still in it. This kind of contamination is forcing the company to reject entire semi-trucks full of compost and send it straight to the dump. Glass is a top culprit on Sanders' most wanted list. During the composting process, it shatters into pieces small enough to evade the company's industrial screening machines. That means tiny shards could end up in bags of compost sold at garden stores. And then this is not safe. You don't want that on your lawn. You don't want that in your garden. And Sanders says the problem is getting worse. In recent weeks, A1 has rejected dozens of truckloads and fined waste haulers. He suspects many of those companies are now just going straight to the landfill to avoid any penalties. And the zero-tolerance policy comes as many environmentally conscious cities try to expand their compost programs and meet local climate goals. If you want us to process material, you got to keep it clean. Otherwise, we just can't do it anymore. We just can't. Colorado has long struggled to keep waste out of landfills. Across the state, only 15% of waste is recycled or composted, about half the national average. The possibility of rejected compost has spooked city officials in Denver. Next year, it kicks off a program to provide free compost bins to all residents in homes or small apartments. Vanessa Lacayo is a spokesperson for the city. After learning about A1's contamination problem, she said the city launched an education campaign to teach people what can and can't be composted. We're trying to do as much as we can to put that education out ahead of any you know changes that we're doing this January. The prospect of spoiled compost has had an even more immediate impact in Boulder. In 2017, the city started requiring all restaurants to give their customers access to compost bins. Jamie Harkins is a Boulder climate policy advisor. She says those bins have become a major source of contamination. You know, if you're in a fast casual restaurant and you have to clean up your own materials after you eat, it's those customer facing bins that are really, really contaminated. On Tuesday, the city announced it would allow restaurants to remove front-of-house compost bins, citing the problems at A1. This is a course correction, of course. Our goals here at the city are really around shifting this whole culture of disposability to more reusables. Reusables like washable plates and cups. Avery Brewing Company is a Boulder Tap Room and restaurant, and it's one business that's already eliminated disposable cups and utensils. 
we take a lot of pride in making sure that we're properly sorting our compost and recycling items. This is Jocelyn DeRocher. She says Avery has improved its compost stream mainly by taking customers out of the equation. Servers retrieve reusable silverware and plates off tables and scrape any food into compost bins. At outdoor water stations, disposable cups are gone, replaced with washable plastic cups. These cups are not expensive. They hold up really, really well. And yes, you're putting a little more pressure on your dishwashing machines, but it's totally worth it. These kinds of efforts have encouraged Clinton Sander at A1 Organics. He's confident people across Colorado want to compost, especially when they realize it fertilizes local food production. We can clean up this stream and save these valuable organics and use them to protect our soils and restore our soils in Colorado. We can. We can do it. But he says success isn't just up to individuals. It requires cities and waste managers to educate residents, swap out disposable materials, and monitor the waste stream. All to make sure his company isn't the one left holding the unwanted bag of trash. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with plans that could double the population of downtown Denver. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. About a million Coloradans have dealt with chronic pain. It can lead to addiction, death, and even thoughts of suicide. But some Coloradans have found new solutions. I feel much more like myself again. I'm much more like the person my wife fell in love with. Conversations with people fighting for relief from chronic pain in the latest episode of Colorado In-Depth. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's downtowns have suffered in the pandemic. Office workers stayed home, so the need for desk space dried up. And think of all those employees who aren't having lunch in their city center or the ones never dropping off dry cleaning. Yet, not everyone is down on downtowns. In fact, developers in Denver are outright optimistic and planning for massive growth. Kyle Harris of Denverite spoke with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Before we get into the future of downtown Denver, let's talk about its recent past. Sure thing. Uh, Before the pandemic, downtown Denver was booming. It had been for decades, basically since the 80s. And that was when the area was hit really hard by the oil bust. At the time, it was basically a place that commuters were coming into for their jobs, and after 5 o'clock, things would completely clear out. Ah, they kind of rolled up the sidewalks. In 1988, a brewer uh, who was a laid-off geologist and who's now a senator, John Higginlooper, opened the Wincoop Brewery, credited as an inflection point of sorts in downtown Denver's history. So yeah, Hickenlooper gets a lot of credit for the growth and the transformation of downtown. Back then, like you said, he wasn't a politician. He was just an entrepreneur who saw a lot of potential in a rundown part of the city. And he started luring in other businesses. One of those was Tattered Cover, the independent bookstore. Its former owner, Joyce Meskus, when she opened that Lodo store in 94, some people thought she was crazy. Turns out they were wrong. They were wrong. And that move gave a lot of other business owners confidence to invest in the area. The early 90s saw the arrival of Coors Field and the Rockies, and then on the outskirts of downtown next to the Auraria campus, developers built the Pepsi Center, which is now called Ball Arena, 
home to the Nuggets and the Avalanche. And the growth didn't stop there. Not at all. So in the following decades, Union Station was restored. A whole neighborhood was built around it. The Riverfront Park neighborhood was built. So was the ballpark neighborhood around Coors Field. And even areas like the Rhino Art District and other parts of Five Points, the Golden Triangle, and Uptown saw many more apartment buildings and businesses opening. There were murals painted on the walls. There were a whole lot of large-scale festivals, too. Even the nightclub Beta, if you remember that, was being celebrated as this nationally renowned center of electronic dance music. And the MCA Denver, it opened its impressive downtown museum. Life was getting really exciting downtown. A lot of change. And by this point, you really could live, work, and play downtown. That was the idea. And all of that came from these big visions of business leaders, of politicians, artists, entrepreneurs, and developers. And really, they've never stopped dreaming up ways to grow the city center. And some of them have managed to make a profit doing so. But they hit a snag, as many of us did, the pandemic. Correct. We all know this story. The offices emptied out, entertainment businesses and restaurants, they were closed for a while, many closed for good. Business has struggled to bounce back and crime has risen. Even when property values were skyrocketing in the rest of the city, and as you know, that's slowing down, some downtown condos saw the first drops in prices. Mm. Conservative pundits have described this as Denver in decay. How did the city respond? Mayor Michael Hancock's administration, the Downtown Denver Partnership, and others started boosting downtown. So they brought Major League Baseball's All-Star Game here, and they described the summer of 2021 as the All-Star Summer. And they hosted festivals and pop-up businesses. Now, at the same time, they were trying to address rising homelessness and more visible encampments. And Denver has a major housing shortage, and prices have been super high. The politicians have also been trying to address crime and public drug use with more social workers and cops. And bringing downtown back is really a work in progress. Work in progress. And yet, as we suggested, developers remain bullish. Yeah, they're betting that downtown is far from dead. They see a lot of room for growth. And sure, it hit the hard time, but for them, that's just a blip. Developers' enthusiasm never really waned during the pandemic. And like one perfect example of this is Rivesco's massive River Mile project. River Mile. Yeah, that's the project along the South Platte River from the Sun Valley neighborhood around Bronco Stadium all the way to Confluence Park where Cherry Creek and the South Platte River meet. And that, that's essentially Denver's birthplace. Yeah, the two rivers, yeah. So right now you go over there, you see Elitch Gardens Amusement Park. That's not going to be there for long. Developers say it'll likely move to the suburbs. And in the meantime, they're going to be building around 15,000 units of housing, along with a whole lot of other fun stuff, art, restaurants, recreation, cultural destinations, shopping, and more. Who's behind this? You use that term, Rivesco. And what's the timeline? The city's really excited about it. Rivesco's the developer, and then Denver Water, which has to do a whole lot of work on the South Platte River. They're also enthusiastic about the project, and they're all in the process of preparing to rechannel that part of the South Platte River to prevent flooding because it's in a floodplain. Um, they found federal money to fund it, and they did a big hoopla about that earlier this year. 
as for the timeline, we could be looking 25 to 30 years in the future to see that entire development come to be. Okay, like a generation. Uh, the growth, though, does not stop there. Not at all. So you have Nuggets and Avalanche owner Stan Kromke's company, Kromke Sports. They recently submitted plans to turn 55 acres of ball arena parking lots into this huge mixed-use development with around 6,000 new homes. They're going to be bike trails, parks, a school, businesses, cultural events, and more. And part of that will be re-envisioning Winecoop Street as what developers call a sports mile that will connect Coors Field to Ball Arena and then all the way to the Mile High Stadium where the Broncos play. Uh-huh. The area will have plenty of trees, green space, places for pedestrians, and the idea is to prioritize people over cars. Uh, is there more? <laughs> and there is. <laughs> there was a recent presentation from uh, national urban planners to the city about reworking the Auraria campus. That's the home to three colleges and universities and to this massive mixed-use development. And what would happen to the schools then? Well, they would stay and they'd be situated now between a ton of new housing, businesses, and retail. The idea would be that this historic commuter campus that's kind of sectioned off from downtown would now be incorporated back into it. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like its own kind of triangle. How big of an expansion of downtown is this? Add up all the math you've been doing. All right, let's do some math. Uh, With 15,000 newcomers at the River Mile, more or less, plus 6,000 at Ball Arena, and however many are going to be relocated onto the Auraria campus, you could actually look at downtown Denver doubling in size in the next couple of decades. My goodness. How are Denverites feeling about these projects, Kyle? Well, I've talked to some kids and they are super sad that Elitch Gardens is moving. Okay. Um, of course, it's moved before and Denver, just like the rest of Colorado, has deep tensions between the people who've lived here all their lives or for a really long time and newcomers. Mm-hmm. So while some of the folks are excited to see all the new economic and cultural activity, others are really worried about the resources and the infrastructure issues, right? Like, where's the water going to come from? Where are all these people going to park? Is it going to increase crime or traffic or other problems? On the other hand, there's this push citywide from a group called Yimby Denver. That's yes in my backyard. They want to do away with what they're calling exclusionary zoning. Which is? That is a fancy way of saying city rules that prevent anything but single-family housing from being built in certain neighborhoods. Ah. So people in that movement are excited to see all this growth, and they want to see more in the rest of the city. Because presumably this is not a single-family. Exactly. Uh We're talking apartments. We're talking condos. Yeah. Others who have seen the growth of Denver, of course, correspond to this big increase in housing prices and traffic and crime. They're afraid of more changes. And as you know, cities are changing organisms. And one of the things that doesn't actually change is this ongoing clash between anxiety and enthusiasm over what's going to come next. Thanks so much for running through what may be coming. It is my pleasure. Thanks so much, Ryan. Kyle Harris covers growth for Denverite. He spoke with my co-host, Ryan Warner. And you heard him invoke both Wincoop and Winecoop. What's the difference? We'll tackle that question after the break in our series, Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Once upon a time, Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s, there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. 
1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A.V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954, orchards were neglected. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state, and Colorado's cherry industry faded. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Think of it as a potato-potato debate exclusive to Colorado. Here again is my colleague, Ryan Warner. Vicki Bamford of Denver wants to know how to pronounce a street name. And she's so unsure of how it's pronounced, she spelled it out. W-Y-N-K-O-O-P <laughs> Street. This is a street that wends its way through Denver's lower downtown and Rhino neighborhoods. It's also a fairly famous brewery in the area. I've heard it pronounced both Wine Coop and Wincoop. I volunteered down on that street and wanted to know how to tell folks how to get there and be correct in my pronunciation. It made sense to head down to the street in question. Hello, sir. Hey there. Do you mind pronouncing the name of this street? I'm just going to point to the sign there. Uh, I'm going to say Wine Coop. You're going with wine, not win. Yeah, yeah, wine. Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> uh, there's a Y, I guess. W-Y-N-K. I get that. Yeah. Okay. That's Zach Van Neville. He was walking by Denver Union Station and was kind enough to stop. Another passerby, Jorge Gonzalez, also took a stab. Win Coop? You're going with win. I am. Why? Uh, I actually had a friend um, whose last name was, uh, was W-Y-N-N-E, and he pronounced it win. And so I guess that's why, yeah. One vote for win, one vote for wine. Well, this is as clear as mud. Then I heard it piercing through the sounds of traffic and downtown construction, the recording that plays at the crosswalk. Wine Coop. Walk sign is on to cross Wine Coop Street. Well, that seems pretty official, right? But I can't ask follow-up questions of a recording, so I opted for a human being, a historian who's helped us out before on Colorado Wonders, and that's Sam Bach of History Colorado. It was windy as heck outside, so we grabbed a table inside Union Station. Well, Sam, which is it? Wincoop or Winecoop? It depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the street, it's named after the man, Edward Wanshear Winecoop. But if you're talking about the brewery, it's Wincoop, because the founders of the brewery didn't want to talk about wine. They serve beer. Got that? Vicki, the street is wine. The brewery is win. But we weren't just interested in pronunciation. We wanted to know about the man behind the street name. Ned Winecoop, uh, as he was known to his friends, was widely known as one of the founders of Denver. He and William Larimer were appointed by the governor of the Kansas Territory to come to Arapahoe County and found a town here and establish some government in a place that had zero Euro-American folks living in it until gold was discovered in Ralston Creek nearby. Do we know much about what kind of a guy Winecoop was? 
Yeah, Wynkoop was a really interesting man. He was definitely a man of his times. Uh, he was born in Pennsylvania, and he came west to join his brother-in-law and sister, uh, who moved to Kansas in the 1850s. And of course, Kansas in the 1850s is in the middle of a major conflict over whether it would be a free territory or a slave territory. And in fact, running battles in the streets in Kansas were pretty commonplace to the point where Ned Wynkoop walked around with a revolver and a bowie knife and was really skilled at using both of them. And so that's one of the reasons that Governor Denver appointed Wynkoop to be the Arapahoe County Sheriff. It was He was a great shot. And so Wynkoop was really involved in a lot of frontier brawls and bar fights and duels um, in his role as Arapahoe County Sheriff. So for two years, he attempted to sort of hold the line and establish some sort of law and order in a town where, you know, there really was just a lawless atmosphere. You know, I don't think the term applied at the time, but this notion of whether it should be free or not is kind of a litmus test. Do we know where he stood on that? Wynkoop really refused to take a position on the issue of slavery. Uh, He had friends who were Democrats and pro-slavery. He had friends who were Quakers and anti-slavery. So when he came out to Denver, uh, to establish Denver, he still hadn't really taken a position on slavery. But as the Civil War approached and as he saw sort of more and more of how much the sectional crisis was taking from Kansas, uh, you know, he really made a moral choice to side against slavery. He was anti-slavery by the time the Civil War started. And in fact, he joined the Union Army, uh, the Colorado Volunteers that were raised at the outset of the Civil War. Now, the amateur historian in me is naturally beginning to think of the Sand Creek Massacre in about this timeline. Does Weinkoop play some sort of role in that? Yeah, it's really impossible to talk about Ned Weinkoop without talking about the Sand Creek Massacre. And in fact, he was really one of the the army officers who were responsible for shedding light on the massacre and countering, you know, Colonel Shivington, who committed the massacre, you know, who was in charge of the massacre. Um, he was countering Shivington's narrative of this was a glorious battle uh, for years. And in fact, up until his death, he was fighting with Shivington in the press about this. So Weinkoop joined the Colorado Volunteers in 1861 when the war broke out. And he was given a lieutenant's rank and fought in the Battle of Glorieta Pass in New Mexico against Confederate forces. He distinguished himself there and was promoted to be major of the company and put in command of Fort Lyon. Over the course of the early part of the war, he led campaigns against the Utes, tasked really with defending American settlers and their outlying outposts near the fort. And he held some really anti-Indian attitudes at the time that were, that were very common and in fact being manufactured and pushed um, from the very folks that he helped found the town of Denver. Attitudes like what? Oh, that these people are savages, that they are uncivilized, that they don't deserve to live on this land because they don't farm it. Um, It's an extremely racist and paternalistic way of understanding the Native people who lived here. And it was very callous, you know. I think it's one of these moments in American history where people allow themselves to be wrapped up in fear and prejudice because of that fear. All right, that is an exploration of Ned Weinkoop, the man. A street is named after him in Denver, and then another guy comes along with an equally unusual last name, Hickenlooper. So when we opened the brew pub, which was the first brew pub in the, in the Rocky Mountains in 1988, uh, we decided to name the bar after the street on which it was located. And the man after whom that street is named was Edward Wanshire Weinkoop. But we didn't make wine. 
we made beer. So we wrote a formal petition to the mayor of Denver, Mayor Pena, and tried to get the name of the street changed to Beer Coop. And he, ref he refused. Therefore, we call it the Wind Coop Brewing Company on Wine Coop Street. The voice of now Senator John Hickenlooper speaking with Nine News. You know, I suppose to some extent I think of this as in opposition to the history, but Hickenlooper was making his own history too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's natural to want to name your brewery for the place, and especially, you know, here in Colorado where the place is so central to the identity of the beer and the brewer. Um, and so invoking the name of the street that you're on makes sense. But, you know, I don't know about changing the name to Beer Coop. I think that might be just one step too far. And I think the mayor agreed with me at the time. Thanks for talking with us. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you very much. Public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado answering a Colorado Wonders question about pronunciation. And just to be clear... The street in Denver is Winecoop. The brewery is Wincoop. So what are you curious about? Let us know and we may investigate. Just go to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that's our show for today with thanks to these wonders. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.